Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's History Class. It's shout-out time, and the first shout-out goes to Jacob Gage. I got to know Jacob when he was taking my history course at Kilgore College, and between classes, he would sometimes come by the office and we would visit. We'd talk about football. We talked about all kinds of things, and then as all the students in my history class at Kilgore College, one day, they were gone, went on with their lives, and a few years later, when I decided to do the history class, thanks to my darling, brilliant daughter on podcast, I happened to see on Facebook that he had messaged his sister, look what I found. It's like old times. Since then, Jacob and I have messaged back and forth, and he told me that it's the next best thing to be in there. He loves them, keep them up. As long as I'm podcasting, he's going to listen. But where did Jacob go? Jacob went to Austin, Texas. He's enrolled at Austin Community College and is taking acting lessons with a great instructor. And because Jacob said he's a great instructor, a shout-out from Jacob. I'm going to re-shout-out. And that instructor is Rick Romer. And I am so glad that Jacob is a podcaster. And he said if we were podcasting, he just loved every one of them. He listened to them. And if I just keep podcasting, it's the next best thing to be in there. He missed coming by the office and visiting with me. Keep them up, Jacob said. Keep them up. It's the next best thing. Please, he said, keep them up. Thank you, Jacob, for being a podcaster. The other shout-out goes to someone who never took me at Kilgore College, but he says he wished he had been able to. And this is Dale Hedrick. Dale is a local here in Kilgore, and I've known Dale long before I was podcasting. And in 2004, my last book, Hector's Texas Brigade and the Army of Tennessee, 1862 to 1865, was published. Now, quickly, I'm going to mention why half the date, 62 to 65, when the war was 61 to 65, because Hector's Texas Brigade was not formed until 1862. But Dale bought the book. And a few days later, I got a telephone call from Dale, and he asked me a question about something in the book. And I said, my gosh, Dale, that's about halfway through the book. Have you read that far? He said, Mr. Strauss, I'm reading it a second time. It's a fantastic book. And I will tell you this, Dale loves my podcast class. He loves it. And he told me to keep it up. And I will tell you one other thing about Dale. He does the homework. Dale does the homework assignments. And I found this out when I talked to him on the phone and we talked about something about homework and should I try to record the songs. Oh, he said he enjoyed doing the homework. And so when I do tell you homework, go to Tennessee Ernie Ford, go to YouTube, do this. One of the ones that does that will be Dale Hedrick. And Dale, I'm so glad that you're a podcaster. He said he loves listening to these podcasts. Jacob does. And I'm going to remind you, podcasters, every one of you, 
I truly appreciate every one of you. Candace, Jennifer, Emily, Amanda, every one of you, I appreciate. Now, I'm going to fess up. That's F-E-S-S. It means confess. I have no idea why I am fascinated with the Medal of Honor. Most people that I talk to, what well, they maybe they know about it. Sometimes they don't. They know maybe and it's something about, about bravery or something. Because of my age and when I was born, I was growing up with World War II veterans everywhere. I talked to my brother one time on the phone. Well, I got to make sure I say this correctly. One of the many times I talked to my brother who lives in Wisconsin, we agreed we do not know when we did not know who Audie Murphy was. And if you are embarrassed but not know, he is the most decorated soldier of World War II. He's a local, not local, but he's from a Texan. Well, it depends on where you are, local, local, he's Texas. I do not know when I did not know about the Medal of Honor. I do not know when I did not know about it. But knowing about it and being in awe, fascinated, as you can tell from the few podcasts I've done on the Civil War, I am in awe of those men. And so, after each one of the battles, I tell you a little bit about the medals of honor that were awarded. I'm going to fess up on something else too, podcasters. Listen to every podcast and count how many times have I said things are not as they are always. The way things are today are not the way they were always. Things change. And you would think of all the people in Mr. Stroud's history class on podcast that I would be the one that knows that. And I will tell you, I just had that reminded me a few days ago in reading a book that I'm going to tell you about in a few moments. And it put the Medal of Honor from the Civil War till today in perspective. The way things were then, but not now. Now, first off, let me tell you a few things about the Medal of Honor from the Battle of Gettysburg. Gettysburg, you have started your book on the Battle of Gettysburg for that million, million copy bestseller. If you didn't do Gettysburg, are you doing the one on President Lincoln's dog's veterinarian? Just so I would know for this podcast, the one battle that everyone knows about in the Civil War, the one battle that most people know about if they're not into the Civil War, the one battle that they would name, if you had to name one battle on Jeopardy, Gettysburg. Back to the bestseller. I went to Amazon. Go to books. Type in Gettysburg. And you just watch. I did that. Podcasters, I counted 40 books. 
4-0, just on the Battle of Gettysburg. And there were pages and pages and pages of books on Gettysburg to go. After 40 books, I just gave up. That's enough. Make a point. Now, if you're really not into this, you may be thinking, my goodness gracious, how many books? Here's something else I used to tell my students in class. And you should see the faces when I told them what I'm going to tell you. Right now, well, I'm going, to put, I'm going to change it. When I was growing up, when I was young, the Civil War historian, the one everyone read was Bruce Canton. He wrote a three-volume of the Civil War, then he wrote one about Mr. Lincoln's army. I read those before I went in the Marine Corps. But he's been replaced now by Shelby Foote. Shelby Foote wrote a three-volume history on the Civil War, and the title is The Civil War, A Narrative. Each volume is about 1,000 pages. And I would tell my students, that's a good brief overview of the Civil War, and those eyes would get as big as saucers. If you're into this war, if you're into Gettysburg, you know what I'm talking about. A couple of things about Shelby Foote. Shelby Foote, Civil War narrative is tremendous. Dale, homework. Candace, I'm positive the Nacogdoches Library has Shelby Foote's three volumes. Just get one and open it to any page and read any sentence. It is beautiful. It is magnificent. I had a history professor at SFA, Stephen F. Austin in Nacogdoches, and he told us that he believed that Shelby Foote wrote great history, was a great narrative, because that's the only history he ever wrote. He was a novelist. He wrote fiction. But when he wrote those three volumes of the Civil War, took him over 20 years to do it, and someone asked him why it took so long. The war was only four years. And Shelby Foote, with that Mississippi accent, said, well, there was more of them than there was of me. It's magnificent, podcasters. And if you don't read anything, you read Shelby Foote's Civil War, a narrative. But even then, if he has 40 pages on Gettysburg, it's an overview. There are books on the first day, the second day, the third day, on different parts of the first day, on the generals of the first day, on the regiments of the first day, regimental histories, the railroad cut, the wheat field, Cemetery Hill, the second day, the third day. Forty books, I just stopped counting. Now what that has to do with all of this is there is no way I can tell you about all these battles, there's just no way. Or about the war, or about Mr. Lincoln. That's why we have libraries. That's why you need to buy them and get these books so that you have them in your library and you can start reading them and you will learn. You will be amazed at what you're going to learn. You would be amazed.
There were 63 medals of honor. See, I'm pausing again. I'm pausing again. Most of the medals of honor for Gettysburg were 20 years later, 30 years later. Some of them who got the did the heroic act in 1863 got it after the turn of the century. There were always a few exceptions. There were 63 medals of honor for Gettysburg plus one. 64. I will tell you about the 64th Medal of Honor in just a few moments. Now, I have a reason why I'm telling you about these that you're going to see. One that I'm going to tell you about right now is James Thompson. His citation is short and simple. Captured the flag of the 15th Georgia, July 3rd, 1863, was presented the Medal of Honor December 1st, 1864. That's during the war. Did I just not say that most of them will be 20, 30, 40 years later? There were a few exceptions. Why? I do not know. The very first one awarded was to that young drummer boy during the seven days battle who continued to beat the drum during the retreat when most drummer boys threw their drums away and that was presented by Abraham Lincoln. So, some were presented, but very few during the war itself. Most of them weren't. Podcasters. I want to, I'm going to tell you something right now. See, I have to watch how I say this stuff. I have to watch how I say this. Don't ever think that you know everything about everything because you don't know everything about everything and you don't know anything about everything or everything about anything, I bet you. Now, if you had trouble following that, we'll just go back and replay it and you can probably follow it. Years before, I did this podcast. Somehow I learned about a book and I read that book. And I'm going to give you the name of that book. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, Candice, you might want to get it in the library. The book was written by John J. Pullen. P-U-L-L-E-N. I'm going to throw in something now. I have a good friend. He reads all the time. And I'll tell him about a book, and the first thing he'll say is, Who wrote it? Who's the author? And I will get on to him. Most of these authors you've never heard of. That does not mean they're not tremendous historians and good authors. But then I do a lot of thinking, podcasters. ING, you know, that thing that just keeps going on. I'm going to have to tell him someone we've not heard of. Because what I think he's asking about is it someone I've heard of is McCullough. Who is it? And I'm going to tell you again, podcasters, what I just got started. You go to a bookstore. Go to a library. Get in the history section. And you just walk around and you look at those books and you read the names of those authors. And you see how many of those people you've ever heard of. But I will give you the name of this author. John J. Pullen. Shout out for him. He also wrote 
the 20th Maine. That was Chamberlain's regiment. And the name of the book I'm going to mention is A Shower, S-H-O-W-E-R, A Shower of Stars, The Medal of Honor, and the 27th Maine. Podcasters, I'm going to tell you something right now. I hope you are readers. You can read in these books, and I will tell you there is a joy in learning. Oh, my goodness, podcasters. I just went back and read a few pages of this book, and I was delighted. It's amazing what you forget. It must have been 20 years since I read this book. The 27th Maine. My goodness. And this is how I got the Medal of Honor in the right perspective. While most Medals of Honor in the Civil War were given for capturing flags, I have framed in my room an original Harper's Weekly print of a Union soldier capturing a Confederate battle flag. And the Confederate that he's capturing it from is dying. And that Union soldier was awarded the Medal of Honor. In many cases, they're fighting. I mean, it's life and death to get that flag. The 27th Maine was not even at Gettysburg. It was a nine-month unit. It was called up, and then it was in Washington, D.C., when Lee started his invasion of Pennsylvania, and the 27th Maine enlistment was up, and they were getting ready to go home. Well, the North was in a panic. Lee had moved north, and he may actually be coming to Washington, D.C. So the Secretary of War told the commander of the 27th Maine he liked for those men to remain behind after their enlistment was up because Lee had moved north. They could go home after Lee is taken care of, if that's the case. But would they please remain behind? Well, the colonel could not order them to remain behind because their enlistment was up. Now, this is what I remember from reading that book years ago. As the colonel was leaving, the Secretary of War said something like, if they stay, we'll give them a Medal of Honor. Give Medals of Honor to those that stay. Podcasters, no one knows if the commander of that regiment even heard that. Or if he heard that, did he even tell the men? But what he told his regiment was, You've been asked to voluntarily stay behind for the duration of Lee's invasion. Can't make you, but we'd like for you to. Most of them didn't. Most of them went home. 296 stayed behind. They never fired a shot. Lee never got close to Washington, D.C. or any closer than Gettysburg. They went home. Then in 1865, the war was over. Somebody remembered that promise. And there was a problem. Nobody had written down the names of the men that stayed behind. So they thought, well, it's just the simplest thing to do would just be give one to everybody in the regiment. And so the 27th Maine that never fired a shot 
at Gettysburg for the action at Gettysburg. 864 medals of honor were awarded that one regiment. 864 medals of honor. The medal cost a little bit more than $2 at that time. And the engraver had to engrave the name of each of those 864 on the reverse of that medal. Which was nothing. It was not gold. It was simply bronze. Now this is the perspective. This is what the 27th Maine author mentioned. At that time, how could the Secretary of War say if those men would simply stay behind a few days, they would each get a Medal of Honor? When we know today it's above and beyond and most who get the award are dead, were killed in the act. And this is the perspective. It was the only medal. It's the first medal. And it was thought of as far as the Secretary of War was concerned Nothing but a small star with a little bit of ribbon on it. Think of it as a good conduct. We'll give him a good conduct. It certainly was not held in the esteem that it is now. And then in 1907, a board of Medal of Honor recipients went back over every single citation from the Civil War up until then, and purged the names of those who did not meet the requirements of bravery. And every one of those men, 864, had their names purged from the Medal of Honor roll. That's one of the reasons the Medal of Honor in the Civil War was not seen as prestigious, if that is even the right word as it is now. But there's other things too. Statute limitations. The exception that proved the rule. Podcast, I'm going to confess to something else. You like me confessing? It took me most of my life before I realized what was meant by the exception that proved the rule. How could the exception prove anything? Well, there is an exception. That has to do with statutes of limitation. When I mentioned the number of Civil War, Gettysburg, Medals of Honor, and that's not counting the 27th Maine, because those names were purged, 63 plus 1. I'm going to tell you about the plus 1. It was a young lieutenant. He was 22 years of age, graduated from military academy. It was not his first battle. Most of these men, it was not their first battle. On July the 3rd, Pickett's Charge. Okay. I'm going to tell you this. If you listen to the Gettysburg Podcast, you know what I just said, Pickett's Charge. If you're not listening to the Gettysburg Podcast, I'd like for you to listen to the Gettysburg Podcast because at the time, it was not called Pickett's Charge. The man who charged that day did not call it Pickett's Charge. It was called Longstreet's Charge. Now, what I'm not going to tell you right now is why it was changed. You go back and listen to the Gettysburg Podcast, and you'll find out why it was changed from Longstreet's Charge to Pickett's Charge. 
but I'm going to use the word pickish charge because that's what we've grown up with. That's what we know about. That's the charge on July the 3rd. And Cushing's artillery battery of six cannon was right there where Armstead with his sword and the cap on his sword, the blunt of the Confederate attack. There were six cannon in his battery and four of them had been knocked out. Every officer in that unit was dead. And there he was next to that artillery piece, wounded two times already and would not leave. The sergeant told him, sir, go to the rear and get medical help. And he refused to go. And he stood by that artillery piece. And when the Confederates were just a few feet away, one shot him in the head and killed him. Now, at that time, they did not award medals of honor to dead people. They didn't see any sense in it. What could they do with it? But the only constant in life is change. Things changed. Especially, and I'll use the Marine Corps in Vietnam as an example. 70% of all the Marines awarded a Medal of Honor for Vietnam bravery, above and beyond, were killed in the act. 70%. So, somewhere between then and now, that changed. About 25 years ago, one of Lieutenant Alonzo Cushion's relatives read about what he had done and contacted other Civil War historians. And they started a letter-writing campaign. And after more than 20 years of letter-writing to Congress because the Medal of Honor is awarded by Congress, presented by the President, they decided to heck with statute of limitations and award Lieutenant Alonzo Cushion the Medal of Honor for bravery on July 3rd, 1863. Now this YouTube is something else. You can go and go to YouTube, Alonzo Cushion Medal of Honor, and you can watch President Obama actually present the Medal of Honor to one of his descendants, and the President does say why Sometimes there has to be an exception to the rule of statute of limitations. What I'm getting at now, podcasters, and I'm not going to pass judgment on it. You can do this. Should Alonzo Cushion been awarded the Medal of Honor? There's a saying right now called moving the goalpost. You could not find a braver individual than Lieutenant Cushing. But I will tell you this. There were a lot of men died on both sides that was brave. I'm not going to pass it one way or the other. And when they do this, and they're going to do it for President Theodore Roosevelt too, long after he was dead, for his actions at, it's known as San Juan Hill. And what they did then, since I got that out, let me go on and tell you. Theodore Roosevelt was actually recommended for the Medal of Honor. But the Secretary of War did not like Roosevelt, so he kind of threw the paperwork over in the trash can and let it lay there. 
and somebody found it. And before they did award him the Medal of Honor, they had historians read what he had done and researched to make sure that it did meet the standards. And I will guarantee you this, Lieutenant Cushing's acts on the July 3rd, 1863, certainly met the standards of the Medal of Honor today. And whether you or I, either one, agree that Lieutenant Cushing should have gotten the Medal of Honor or not, it doesn't matter because it was awarded him and it's now a fact. Another part of the postscript, the last Medal of Honor awarded for Gettysburg was to Alonzo Cushing, the last soldier to die of wounds from the Civil War was Colonel Joshua Chamberlain. Colonel Chamberlain would be awarded the Medal of Honor for defending and holding the Round Tops on July 2nd, 1863. Punk do you like for me to confess up? Because I'm going to confess up to something else. I have one of the prints that I told you about. And this is a print of Lee surrendering Appomattox Courthouse. And then that print is, by this time, a general. And this is Chamberlain. And me, knowing it all, looked at that man in that print and he did not have the Medal of Honor on. I thought, oh, well, well, well. I got my comeuppance. He was not awarded the Medal of Honor until after the turn of the century. I believe it was in 1908 he got the Medal of Honor for Gettysburg. This is something I would tell my students from time to time. Like the first Texas at Antietam. That when they went into the cornfield that day, they had 246 men, officers, staff alike. Don't hold me on that exact number. And that was down from 1,000 a year before. These men keep on fighting. Most of them do. And so did Chamberlain. Chamberlain would be wounded six times in this war. And his last wound, a very serious one. Well, every wound was serious, podcasters. Every wound was serious. Life-threatening, as they say. What at Petersburg, and charging the Confederate lines, he was shot. He was afraid that if he went to the ground, the men that he commanded would lose their momentum. It would, And so he used all of his strength and held himself up by putting the tip of his sword in the ground and used that to prop himself up until literally from loss of blood he went down. And even then, he thought it was a mortal wound he would not survive, so he told the surgeons, don't waste your time on me. Take care of my men. And they refused that order, and they kept working on him, and they worked all night, and they saved him. He's going to live. He survived. He becomes governor of Maine. At one time was a teacher, which makes him very respectful to me. And in 1914, one of the wounds he'd received in the Civil War, one of the many balls, moved and got him in the heart or either the lung, I don't remember which, I read that in his biography many years ago, and he actually died 
1914 from a wound he had received in the Civil War. He was the last man from that war to die of wounds, or as I like to say, D-O-W. Now here's something else about the Gettysburg Post Strip. The number of dead. Over 3,000 dead. Lee retreated on the 4th of July, and podcasters, if you know about the war, is there something how to think about? I'm not going to do it right now. I'm not going to get off. I'm not going to. But the same day that Lee retreated from Gettysburg on the 4th of July, Independence Day, Vicksburg, Mississippi surrendered to General Grant. I'm going to talk about that in another podcast. A few days after Vicksburg surrendered, Port Hudson, Louisiana surrendered. I'm going to tell you right now, do not think that it's all over but the shouting. There's a great Civil War historian, and he said you have to learn history from forward. You have to learn it from that point. We know how this came out. And it's hard to get back to a time when you did not know how this war was going to come out. Because I will tell you that although Lee has been turned back at Gettysburg, and Vicksburg has surrendered, and Port Hudson has surrendered, it certainly is not all over but the shouting by any stretch of the imagination. Now, Lee was sick during Gettysburg. Is that an excuse? I'll leave it to you. He blamed himself. And he wrote to President Jeff Davis that he's going to resign. Well, who else are they going to put in his place? If you're into the Civil War, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not into the Civil War, it does not matter. Who else would take the place of Lee? You, there is no one that can take the place of Lee. And so Davis did not take his resignation. Another thing that Civil War historians talk about was whose fault was it that Lee lost at Gettysburg? Well, as I mentioned before, that because General Longstreet was not a Virginian and would become a Republican, a scallywag, although I read his biography and he was a scallywag only in name only, they decided to put the blame on him. Now, I will tell you, on the second day of July, he did drag his feet in a charge against the Round Tops, Devil's Den. But I'm going to tell you who I believe is the reason that Lee lost at Gettysburg, and General George Pickett also agreed with me. Someone asked Pickett about who was it that lost the battle at Gettysburg, who was at fault, and he simply said he put all the blame directly on the Yankees. It was the Yankees. And General Meade, George Gordon Meade, that was the first time he'd ever commanded that army. He fought brilliantly. Another thing, podcasters, that you have to put up with on my podcast are these swords. The first book I wrote was Inscribed Union Swords. The second one was the sword and revolver presentations in the newspaper. You talk about a time machine, you read those newspapers. Also, and looking at those two books, because I've got them right here in my little library, 
On August the 31st, the Boston Daily Evening Transcript reported that a few days before, General George Gordon Meade had been presented a beautiful sword for his actions at Gettysburg. There's no way I'm going to read you that description because, as I say, I do not read out loud very well. I will tell you, if you could find a picture of that sword, the grip was solid silver, the pommel had a silver eagle with the wings partially spread, George Gordon Meade's initials were in diamonds upon the scabbard, the blade was Damascus, and I have in my house, oh, here we go bragging again, many years ago, I bought a Harper's Weekly, an original, and a full-page print of General Meade being presented that sword. I've got it framed. I'm going to put it on my Facebook. I'm going to put a photograph of Lieutenant Cushion on my Facebook. I'm going to tell you again for the 19th time, most historians and most people do not put the importance of these swords and being presented Go back and listen to the podcast on Grant's name change and his nickname. A beautiful, beautiful sword. In my book, Inscribed Union Swords, a young lieutenant by the name of James March is presented a sword on almost the same day as General Meade was. And in my book is a photograph of Lieutenant March holding that sword and a photograph of that sword, because at the time, that sword belonged to me. Podcasters, these are things that are overlooked over and over and over. I'm going to tell you one more. I got started. I'm going to tell you one more. Oliver Wonder Holmes Jr., the later the Supreme Court Justice, shot in the neck at Antietam, almost died. There's a photograph of him in the book on Antietam. I have that same photograph in my book, but the one that you see mostly of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. as a lieutenant, you don't see the sword. In my book, you do. They crop the sword out. He's cradling his foot officer's sword in his arm. These swords were extremely important. There was another officer in the Battle of Gettysburg that while he was retreating on the first day, his name was Colonel Charles Whitlock, 97th New York. He ran into a house. It was a school, and there were some ladies in there. And as the Confederates came in, they demanded his sword. And then the battle distracted him. And when the Confederates came back and said, where's that sword? He said, another officer took that sword. I'm sorry, I mean, that's... Well, they took him as a prisoner, and he escaped. And he came back to that house. And what he'd done is he'd handed that sword to one of those young ladies. And she simply laid it next to her dress and put a fold over it. And then he got his sword. In my book, Inscribed Union Swords, there's count after count after count of men risking their lives to save those swords. Because they were presented to them by their men. So, what's left to say about Gettysburg? 3,000 dead, 
how many died of wounds. I'm going to give you a rough estimate. North and South, Union and Confederate at Gettysburg, there were about 50,000 casualties. Most are going to be wounded. Now, the Confederate casualties, they don't know what they're estimated, but they were horrendous. 80% are going to die of wounds. I mentioned this after the Battle of Antietam, podcasters. How many people have dug a hole six feet deep? It's July. Some of those bodies have been lying out there since the first day of July. Lee surrendered on, surrendered, I'm sorry, retreated on the 4th. You got to get those people buried. Remember how you bury them? You bury your own first? A little bit better grave? Did you go to that page? Find the book, Gettysburg, A Journey in Time by William Forcianto. And you go to the page. I'm looking at it right now. You go to the page. Hang on. I'm looking at it. 220. And you look at those dead Confederates in that grave. And you tell me that's two feet deep. In many cases, they put them in there. And they just put dirt over them. And then the armies were gone. A little town of 2,000. Lee marched in with 70,000. Meade comes in with more than 100,000. They slaughter each other. And then they leave. That's your town, podcasters. Mary's going to go over and see a friend. And my gosh, right there near the... Right there near the flower bed, there's some dead soldiers. The hogs have put them out. Did I mention hogs? They're pulling the dead ones out. Podcasters, it is not a pleasant scene. And somebody wrote somebody and said, somebody better get down here and clean this place up. And somebody said, we're going to do that. We are going to do that. We're going to have a national cemetery for those soldiers that were killed. The Union soldiers that were killed. David Wells, W-E-L-L-S, is the one that thought that maybe they should do that. Now, should do that. Should do what? They got to rebury those men. And they're going to do it at Cemetery Hill. He'd already made arrangements to buy land for a cemetery. The Confederates would be buried somewhere else. This is going to be the Union dead. Now, this is what you got to do. There's going to be a contract. You're going to have to pay somebody to pick up over 3,000 dead and dig them up and move the Union soldiers to the Union Cemetery and the Confederate soldiers to the Confederate. So the first thing you're going to have to do is know whether one is Union and one is Confederate. It's not as easy as you may think because there's a lot of Confederate soldiers wearing Union soldiers' uniforms. It's not because they're trying to hide. It's because it's all they had. And so the first thing you got to do is separate the Union dead from the Confederate dead. The podcast is this is not an easy chore and it's not very pleasant at all. 
Now, this is what you're going to do. You're going to dig them up, identify them. Not as an individual, although I will tell you again, soldiers were horrified at being killed and not being identified, and family would never know, so they had individual deaths, they had things, they did everything they could to be identified if they were killed. Now, this is the way they're going to do it. The Union dead are going to be moved to Cemetery Hill. They're going to be buried by states. New York, Massachusetts, New Hampshire. They're going to be buried by regiments. As much as possible. And they're going to be buried decently. In coffins supplied by the War Department. How long does that take? When it was about halfway completed, they decided that there was going to be a ceremony. There was going to be a dedication to that. And the dedication was going to take place in November 1863, on November the 19th. Podcasters, if you ever, ever, ever took one of my classes, you probably remember I said this 99 times every week. I've said it several times on these podcasts. I do not know what you know about what I'm going to say. All I know is what people have told me, either in class or in conversations. And so I'm going to do the best I can to dot every I and cross every T. There's going to be a ceremony. And I'm going to brag on Wikipedia again. I tell you, it goes into the details that it's just unbelievable. Who did this? Who did what? What band is going to play what song? Who's going to give what speech? Now, what I'm getting at is this. Two things, and I'm going to call this class as an end. I've heard about the Gettysburg address that Lincoln's going to give that incorrect. One was that they didn't even want him to be there. That is absurd. You cannot have a dedication of a cemetery for Union dead in a very important battle and not have the commander-in-chief there. Now, where that may have come from, he was never intended to be the keynote speaker. Most of us today know about people in the news because we see them on television and we hear them talk. That is not the way it was in 1863. Very few people ever saw Lincoln. Lincoln did not have a pleasant voice. He had a high, irritating pitch voice. He did not pronounce his words right. Instead of Mr. Chairman, he would say Mr. Chairman. Now, how do we know this? From people writing letters, I heard the president speak today. Oh, my gosh, what a devil. Oh, it was a terrible voice. But you know what? Lincoln didn't mind. What could he do about it anyway? Again, unlike today, most of what we know about our leaders, we hear on television. 
1863, you would read. You would read what he said. You never saw him. Oh, Lincoln's going to be there. And these are my words. I read the letter that invited him to come. And it was, and these are my words, make a few appropriate remarks. Let's emphasize few, F-E-W, appropriate remarks. A book I read, put it best. A new business is opening in your town, and they got the mayor out there, they got the Chamber of Commerce out there, they got the Yellow Ribbon, they're going to have the official opening. And when the mayor talks and says how great it is to have this new business and how many jobs and all the things it's going to do for the economy, and then you hand these oversized scissors to somebody, and he's going to make the official opening by cutting the ribbon, and just before he snaps that ribbon, he says a few appropriate words. That's Lincoln's job. The keynote speaker, Edward Everett. Podcasters, that man was a speaker like you wish you could have heard. These are my words, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. If you could get Edward Everett to say he would give the keynote address there, it's going to be a success. And he said he would. That's what he did. He was a Harvard man. He was a teacher. He was a governor. He was a speaker. And he said he would give the keynote address. And Lincoln is going to come and say a few appropriate words. Another. Oh, they said Lincoln Dunn forgot that he was supposed to give any talk at all. He wrote that on the back of an envelope on a train chugging down the track. In the very first podcast on Mr. Stroud's history class, I mentioned BS, Bachelor of Science degree. I will tell you this right now, and I'm going to repeat it when I get started on the next podcast. There is absolutely no way Mr. Lincoln is going to write anything that's going to be printed in a newspaper without giving it complete thought. Now, I know this will shock you about how people are going to use the words that this man says and use them against him. All the people that don't like him, you want to go back through by how popular Mr. Lincoln was at that time? Lincoln knows that. And so all he can do is this. If they're going to use my words against me, I'm going to make sure these are the words I want down there. I'm not going to get up and just speak off the cuff. I don't do that. No one knows how long he worked on these few appropriate words. I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to end. In my opinion... And if I would not give you my opinion, except I know I am right. It's the best speech he ever gave. It's one of the best speeches in American history. I did not teach speech. I do not tell people how to teach other subjects. But if I did, I would tell speech teachers, you look at this speech. And you analyze this speech. It is tremendous. No one knows how long it took him to write those few appropriate words, but I will guarantee you this, he wrote every one of them. He had speech writers, but like all speech writers, when you are the man that has to give the speech, what you say is up to you. And when they give those speeches, they make adjustments, they make them fit what they want. Not in this case. 
every word was written by Lincoln. And I'm going to tell you this. He wrote his speeches in pencil. When something was going to be published, he wrote it in pencil. And then he handed it to someone who put it in type. Who put it in ink. He wrote in pencil. And the next podcast, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to tell you about the Gettysburg speech that you all know about, that you can look up in a book, you can look up at one of the two speeches on the monument. I'm also going to tell you about what he actually said. It was, I believe, the greatest speech he ever gave. That's my opinion, and I know I'm right. But there is also a book called Lincoln's Greatest Speech, and I used to tell my students in class, I disagree. Well, then I read the book, Lincoln's Greatest Speech, and the reason the author titled it that was because that's what Lincoln said. And that was his second inaugural, which he said afterwards, I believe that was my greatest speech. And when we get to that, I will tell you about that. For the next podcast, the Gettysburg Address, that you've seen, you can look up, you can Google right now. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. I have heard it repeated over and over and over and over in many cases, and no one has gotten it correct on what he actually said. That will be the next, the next podcast. Have a good day, podcasters, and please come back.